So without endorsing necessarily any of these movies because they all need clarity and maturity, I want to ask you a question and see if you can figure it out. I'm going to list some movies and books, and I want you to tell me what they all have in common, if you can. Uh, Matrix, don't bother seeing those, by the way. Uh, Dune, Lord of the Rings, Narnia, Percy Jackson, Harry Potter, the Lego movie, and perhaps the most famous of all, the Star Wars franchise. Do you know what they all have in common? They're telling a true story? No, who, who said it? A protagonist, that's good, but that's not true. Yeah. They all have what? Weapons? That's true, but that's not it. Miss Pat? They have what? Idols. They all have idols. And, and how about you, Matthew? Prophecy. That's it. Did you look at my notes this week? Oh, you did. Okay. That's the answer. Prophecy. Any of, any of you guys remember when we found out that Darth, that, that Darth Vader, now you, get, you may not get points for being a genius, but you get points for having comedic timing and cleverness. Do any of you guys remember when we found out that Darth Vader was supposed to be the chosen one and fulfill the prophecy to bring balance to the force? Boy, that was an empty, shallow promise, wasn't it? says the last three Star Wars movies. But the, the idea behind most of these stories, well, the idea behind all of them, is that there's some point to all of history. There is a force in all of these stories and movies that uh, is going to unfold things in the pre-planned manner. And in particular, they're going to do it through a chosen one who will come and make right what has been wrong. But do you ever wonder why this idea of a chosen one prophesied is so captivating and why it fills so many stories and movies? Even for people who don't have a religious background, it's a trope that provokes and stimulates. Why? Why is that? I think it's because deep down in all of our hearts, we know that this world is supposed to make sense and it doesn't. We know in our minds that there is an ideal. There is a shalom. There is a, a core peace and health that this world is supposed to resonate with, and it doesn't. We know that selfishness is wrong, and greed is wrong, and oppression is wrong, and exploitation is wrong. We know these things are wrong. They're in our hearts, and they're in the hearts of the people we encounter, and they run through the nations. And we know it's wrong. We know it's wrong because we know there's supposed to be a right, whether we believe in absolute power or not, whether we believe in ultimate ideals or not. Every protest against injustice is a clamoring for this concept that there should be justice, there should be what's right, and there isn't. And so these prophecies and this idea of a chosen one, they fuel this hope that there's a force behind everything guiding it for good, that we're not going to just stay like this. We want to know that there's someone powerful enough and good enough and caring enough to rescue us and to rescue this world full of so much beauty but so much brokenness. We want to know that there might be a chosen one worthy of our hope and our trust and even our awe so that we can finally rest 
And we want all these hopes to have some legitimacy. And so if it's foretold, if the hope we have is prophesied long ago, if things to come are seen from ancient times, then when it does come to pass, this gives it all legitimacy. But what might be lost in all these movies and stories is that they're, they're not only rooted in these universal hopes we all have, but they're actually rooted often very intentionally and explicitly they're inspired by the example of God's word. That the, this is how the God of the Bible, that civilizations and cultures have known about and have been engaged with to some varying degree, this is how he works. Because there is a power. There is a force that is powerful enough and good enough and cares deeply enough about you and this broken world to use his great power to make things right again and to legitimize himself and make sure that we understand that he is who he says and he does all that he pleases. He has told the world in prophecy after prophecy ahead of time that specifically through his chosen one whom the Bible calls the Messiah, he is going to make right what is wrong. And he gave us these prophecies after prophecies after prophecies so that we wouldn't miss him. Because it's crucial that we don't miss him. So that when he finally comes, you and I today would be able to look back and say, this is true. This is legitimate. There are a lot of competing options in the marketplace for my hope. But this one has legitimacy This one comes from God himself for only God himself could know the end from the beginning and bring these things to pass despite all the brokenness and all the ambitions of men. And so what I want to do this morning is to walk you through a brief survey of the prophecies surrounding Christmas and Christ whom we call the Messiah so that those of us who do know him would have more assurance and more hope to stay with him, to keep trusting him, and to more deeply follow him. And that those of us who may be here not yet sure what to do with Jesus Christ would have help to believe that he indeed may be the hope that we all need. Have you ever used Google Earth to look at where you live? I mean, it's really fun, right? You start out with this giant planet way, way, way back. Far enough, you might be able to see the moon in space. And then you, you put an address in. And then you click, and it takes you closer. And you click. You, you go from the big picture, and then you move in with each click to your continent, and then to your country, and then to your state. And you start to see the mountains and the rivers near your home. And you see the roads and the rooftops and your street, and so on and so on. You see cars that you no longer have in your driveway. <laughs> but that's, that's sort of somehow, somewhat how God works in the Bible to tell us about the Messiah. The first images of this Messiah are very big picture. They're far off and less focused. But over time, 
over Israel's history and through prophet after prophet, it becomes more and more clear. And I think today, I hope you will say with me, it becomes shockingly clear. Now we can't look at everything, so we're gonna look at a few, but we're gonna look at several unmistakably predictive passages that allow us to Google Zoom in closer and closer until the final image of the Messiah, the chosen one, becomes clear centuries before he ever took his first breath on earth. I want to start our first prophecy at the start of all things in Genesis 3, at the very first heartbreaking moment when our first parents, created by God, told their creator that they did not trust him and they, they rejected his loving rule over their lives. Scriptures tell us that somehow spiritually, Satan demonically speaks through a created being, in this case a serpent, and they choose his lies and rebel against the holy love of God. And everything breaks that day and will remain broken until he makes it right again. But, but even in that day, in that moment, as God brings judgment upon the human family, he promises redemption. As he judges Satan, he says this. Can we move forward one slide, Edward? This is the Lord speaking to Satan through the snake. I will put enmity, that means hostility, division, fighting, opposition. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There is something unusual about this prophecy if you don't slow down and start to look at it and think about if you don't know how the Bible usually operates. Because in this prophecy, it is a woman whose offspring is promised to oppose Satan and stand triumphantly on his very head. This reference to the offspring of a woman is unusual. Many theologians over centuries have seen in it clear intimations of a virgin birth the virgin birth of Jesus Christ and the truth that as to his humanity, Jesus has no earthly father, but is in the purest sense, physically speaking, the offspring of a woman. So the Bible speaks this way uniquely in a way I, I know of it speaking no other place. Now millennia pass in the history of the world from we move from the garden to Noah's flood to the Tower of Babel, and finally in the midst of a world thousands and thousands of years later that has seemingly forgotten God, Yahweh speaks out of the darkness and the silence to this man, Abraham. And we've talked a lot about Abraham over the past few weeks. But he tells him that he'll become a great nation as we've talked about, promises him a homeland, an eternal forever place, and that many years pass when one astonishing day God does something with this man that is very strange, very off-putting, very grave. He calls Abraham to sacrifice his own son to God. The very son that God had promised him and promised through whom he would bless the world. And Abraham, trusting God, who can do all things, could even raise this boy of promise. Abraham willingly says, yes, Lord, I will offer this son to you. And God stops him 
And then the angel of the Lord says, don't lay a hand on him. And then God says this really peculiar thing, and I want you to hear the resonance of these words. He says this, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, and your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. What is it about God's heart that resonates so with this theme of giving up your son, your only son? There it is in Genesis 22, centuries before God would say the same thing to the world. And Abraham's willingness to trust God by giving up his son, his only son, we see a reflection of God's heart to give up his son, his only son, to death for Abraham and for all of mankind. And then God immediately upon that willingness of Abraham reaffirms that in Abraham's offspring, not just the Hebrew nation, but every single nation in the world will find blessing. Decades later, on his deathbed apparently, Abraham's grandson Jacob gives this prophecy about a descendant of one of his sons, Judah. And he says this, can we move forward, Ed? Jacob prophesies this way to his son Judah. He says the scepter, that is the ruling staff, shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. And listen to this. Until the one to whom it belongs comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the nations. Jacob is prophesying here. He isn't known as a prophet but he makes a crucial prophecy for all time. Perhaps close to 4,000 years ago, he blesses his son Judah and said, there is someone who's gonna come from you to whom the obedience of all the nations will belong. And so now a clearer picture of the Messiah is emerging. We've been zooming in on our Google map here. He's born from the seed of a woman. Move forward at one slide, please. He's born from the seed of a woman. He descends from Abraham. He blesses the whole world. He descends from Abraham's grandson, Jacob. And of Jacob's 12 sons, it's Judah's descendant who's singled out as bringing the one who will rule not just Israel, but the whole world. Now let's Google zoom forward some 800 years later to around 1000 BC. We're about 3000 years away from our day today. A man named David has been made king over all of Israel. He's the highest authority in the land before the Lord. It's important to remember, David is the king. He's the highest authority in the land before the Lord. And yet, one day, the Holy Spirit leads David to write a song. We call them Psalms. But it's one of the strangest Psalms that an Israelite could ever hear. If only he and we would, would stop to really think about what this psalm says. David says this mysterious thing, and it may not seem mysterious to you now, but think of it in a moment, the way that I'll try to set it up for you guys. Here's what David writes in his song. This is David speaking, and he says this, the Lord, that is Yahweh, said to my Lord, sit at my right hand while I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. 
The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand while I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Do you see this? This is not a Christian nation. They have no concept of a trinity. Yet David speaks of Yahweh talking to someone else that David calls his own Lord. David's got one Lord named Yahweh and another Lord in this psalm. And yet David is the king. How can he have a Lord besides the Lord his God as well? Jewish scholars rightly discerned that this was speaking of a Messiah, a future ultimate king of Israel who would come from David's own descendants. But it would be nonsensical. This is what was so irrational or difficult about this psalm. It's nonsensical in their understanding of the human family for someone to call one of their descendants their Lord. They're not your Lord. They're your son, your grandson. You're their Lord, if anything. Later in the psalm, God says something else that's very strange. If we think about it from the point of view of a Jewish person, 1000 B.C., God speaks to this Messiah, this coming king, and he says to him this sentence. He says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. That might not mean anything to you guys, but if you were a devoted Israelite, this would have been a real problem. The Old Testament forbids that the king may also be a priest. And it forbids that a priest may also be a king. It's forbidden. It's kind of like the president can't be a senator and a senator can't be a judge. These separation of offices were important to God. But in this psalm, the Holy Spirit tells David something different is coming. A descendant of David, the coming king, will be his Lord, but will also be his priest forever. He will unite the role of king and priest It's very strange for a Jewish person trying to process this. Zooming in further hundreds of years through the prophetic clock, we're about 700 or so years before Christ is born. And we read one of the most famous prophecies from Isaiah. And there's a mystery hidden in it. And see if you can perceive it. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. And a branch from his roots will bear fruit. With righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Then in that day, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples and his resting place will be glorious. There's a mystery in this messianic prophecy. This person, this Messiah, this coming ruler, his word is like a king's staff. It's authoritative and powerful. He judges evil. He rules for the poor and the oppressed and the suffering. He brings global peace and nations come to him for rest. But notice something akin to this riddle. This man is called the root of Jesse and the shoot of Jesse. This man is portrayed as a branch coming out of Jesse as a descendant would. But he's also called the root, the source of Jesse. 
How can someone be someone's descendant and also be the source of someone else? As if my great-grandfather could also be my great-son, my great-grandson. You can't be someone's descendant and also be their source. But in the ninth chapter of Isaiah, the prophet makes clear how this can be in one of the most famous Christmas time prophecies. There Isaiah tells us quite plainly, a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. I want to remind you again, the Jewish people had no concept of the Trinity They had no concept of a Godhead three in one. And yet this child, this son given, is called mighty God. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. So this helps us understand how David's descendant can yet be his Lord. This helps us understand how the branch that comes from Jesse can also be the source that makes Jesse. This son given to us is not just a son. He's eternal God. So clicking through again, moving forward, one slide, Ed, one more. We see the seed of a woman, not a man, intimating a virgin birth. We see a descendant of Abraham, Jacob, and Judah who will bless and rule over the nations. We see a descendant of David and yet the Lord of David. We see a king who will also be a priest, which is impossible in the Mosaic Code. We see the source of Jesse, one who produces Jesse, but yet comes from Jesse. We see a son and a child who's also mighty God bringing unending peace. It's getting clearer but it will get clearer still. Around the very same time Isaiah is prophesying, the prophet Micah wrote this famous prophecy. Can we move forward one? But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. He's talking about a little town, Bethlehem. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. This one will be our peace. This is Micah 5 and 5a. So here we hear again of one who is sourced in eternity past and yet a descendant of Judah. One whose greatness is so profound that he becomes the very peace of his people. But we're also told the very place of his birth. A tiny, humble little village called Bethlehem. where the scripture readings this morning told us Jesus was born. When I used the word shocking, I was thinking in particular, in terms of prophetic clarity, I was thinking of the next prophecy. Because not only do we understand where the Messiah will come from, from prophecies centuries before, but we understand exactly when. This is, to me, perhaps the most astounding passage of biblical prophecy in existence. It 
comes from Daniel 9, verses 24 through 27. And in Daniel 9, we see the angel Gabriel, the same one who spoke to Mary, come to Daniel. And during this time, Jerusalem had been destroyed. Daniel's in exile in Babylon. And the city and its temple had been completely laid waste by the Babylonians. The angel Gabriel comes to comfort Daniel. And he tells him this very, very detailed and enigmatic passage. And I'm not going to go through it in detail today. And if you want to talk more about this, I would love to direct you to resources that can help you understand it better. But hopefully you'll be able to get the gist of it. Because it is truly astonishing. And Gabriel says this to Daniel. From the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. If anyone enjoys enigmatic mysteries and riddles, sometimes God does too. God is a poet and he's creative and sometimes he veils things and sometimes he hides them outright, but sometimes he turns them into mysteries for us to unpack. And so here's this mysterious, strange prophecy from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. Can you go back, Ed, back behind? Uh, there you go, stop right there. Now just about every theologian I've ever read understands those sevens, when he says seven sevens and 62 sevens, to refer to seven sets of years. So seven sevens of years would be how many years? 49 years, seven times seven, right? So if we put these seven sevens and 62 sevens together, you get 69 sevens, right? So 69 times seven equals 483. So what Gabriel is telling Daniel is that when you hear of this decree to rebuild Jerusalem, there will be 483 years until the Messiah comes. I wish I could say this with more eloquence. That is crazy. <laughs> like, that is crazy. This book, Daniel, it wasn't written after Christ came. Even liberal critical scholars agree it was written a century and a half at least before Christ. But the language doesn't work for a century and a half. The language works for what the Bible said when the Bible says it was written. Yeah. Oh, I made an error there. Sorry. Thanks, Jacob. Yeah, 69 times 7. Thanks, Jacob. You answered my prayer to be protected from error. Gabriel gives Daniel a 483-year countdown until the Messiah comes. That's crazy. That's amazing. And if we go back to that issuing of a decree, and there's, there's several that could be around the same time period, there's slightly different ways you can figure this, but the most reliable one I've heard comes in 444, 445 BC uh, from Artaxerxes, and that decree takes us out, 483 years from that decree takes us out to around 30 AD. Some people get very technical with this and land on Palm Sunday. I'm not going to get into all the weeds of that, but it's amazing and it's an incredible prophecy. 
Because this 483-year countdown takes us to the very time when Jesus begins or sums up his ministry, his public life on earth. And then what Gabriel says next is equally astounding if you understand a little bit about history because he says this, and next slide, Ed, one more. Then after the 62 sevens, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. This is an incredible foretelling of history that is to come. Gabriel says the Messiah is going to be cut off. A violent, that, that phrase cut off in Aramaic, it's a violent and untimely end. And, and then after this Messiah is cut off, Gabriel says the city and the temple are going to be destroyed. They hadn't even been re- rebuilt yet when Gabriel tells him this. They've already been destroyed once. And he's saying it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen all over again. But what's really, really compelling and powerful is that what Gabriel is saying is that the appearance, the coming of the Messiah, it must come before the destruction of this temple and this city that is yet to be rebuilt. Because Gabriel says that by the time the, city, the rebuilt city and the rebuilt temple are destroyed, the Messiah will have come and have been cut off. My friends, the city of Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed 35 years after Jesus' death in 70 AD. The Old Testament prophets, the Jewish scriptures that they read and believe today have told them as they tell us that by 70 AD, the promised Messiah that they're still waiting for had already come and had been cut off. But why does Gabriel tell us this about the Messiah? This isn't the good news that we talked about, the one who puts the world right, who makes a right world whole again. Why would this son, who is a mighty God, why would he be cut off? Well, don't go to your New Testament. Because we, I say this reverently, we find the answer in the Old Testament as well. And with that, I've saved my last prophecy It is the most important prophecy. It may not be the most astonishing from our perspective because it it may not set the date so well as Daniel did, but it's the most profound for it tells us the meaning of the Messiah like no other scriptures do. And perhaps the Old or New Testament as clearly. If we go back to the book of Isaiah, we see this picture of the Messiah and he's phrased as someone called the servant of the Lord. Isaiah calls him building in the, in the last third of, of the, the book of Isaiah as this person called the servant of the Lord. And, and Isaiah says beautiful things about this servant of the Lord who is also the Messiah. God delights in his servant. He is gentle. He is filled with the Holy Spirit. He's full of the fear of the Lord. He's trustworthy. He's on a saving mission. He becomes the center of a covenant of peace between Israel and God. More than that, he becomes a light for all the nations, not just Israel. His coming is good news of salvation. His coming is God's reign restored. His coming is joy to people. 
and it's crescendoed like a cymbal crash in the 52nd chapter of Isaiah. Isaiah exalting in all the Messiah is going to come and do and bring. He says this, the Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. Isaiah is saying everyone is gonna see the arm of the Lord and God is going to make them all see it, all the nations, not just Israel, that the ends of the earth may see God's salvation. Here in 52, in another place, the the servant is also called the arm of the Lord because he's so closely related to God himself that he's merely, simply, he's not merely, he's simply and profoundly an extension of God himself. But as we zoom in today for the last time comes a shock because just a few verses later, after all this jubilant hope and joy about the Messiah bringing right what is wrong. Isaiah says this about the arm of the Lord, this Messiah to come. He says in the 53rd chapter, who has believed our message? Ed, can we move forward? Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely, our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people. He was punished. I'm not going to walk through the rest of this passage. You can walk through it yourself. It is extremely profound and mesmerizing. It was written 700 years before the first Christmas, before Jesus took his first breath on the earth. This prophecy had been dried on parchment for 700 years. Catch me if I'm doing the math wrong, but it would be like someone telling Daryl's life story in 1323. Someone talking about your very unique life and mission in 1323. 
The rest of the passage in Isaiah makes clear that this suffering servant of the Lord, this arm of the Lord, would not only die, but would rise. Isaiah says, if he renders himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see light and be satisfied. At this point, it's difficult to imagine the picture getting any more clear. God has indeed prophesied to us again and again and again that he is going to make this world right and that he is going to do it through his chosen one, the Messiah. And he's told us all about him. He will be born of the seed of the woman to destroy Satan and his work the one who deceived the woman first. She will bear the Messiah. Descendant of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Jesse, and David, the savior of Israel and the peace of the whole world. He will be a king and a priest. And we know what that means now about his priesthood. What is his priesthood? His priesthood is the offering of himself. He is a child given to us and a mighty God over us. He will be born in Bethlehem and he will come in history exactly when Gabriel promised he would 500 years before. Exactly. He will be the arm of the Lord who will suffer for the world's sins. He will die in the place of sinners but see the light of life in the resurrection and save millions and millions and millions and millions. Friends, this broken world is not forgotten by God. He told us century after century, prophecy after prophecy, that he would send a chosen one, a rescuer. And this is a sample, by the way. There's so many more. I I feel that these are some of the most profound, but some estimates say that there are some 300 prophecies in the Old Testament about the Messiah. God is going to make the world right, and he is in the process of saving people to do that. The Messiah is going to rule the world in righteousness. He is going to judge the world. He is going to render decisions for the poor and the oppressed and judge sin. But before he comes to do this, before he comes to establish his kingdom in its, all of its fullness and all of its power and all of its glory, before he comes to judge mankind, he comes as a baby born in a stable, born not to judge but to be judged, born to die for sin and make our peace with our creator whom we have sinned against. When Jesus finally began showing himself to the world, he had a simple message at the start. We see it in Mark's gospel. He said to the people, repent and believe the good news. This call, repent and believe, this is the reason why God did so much to make sure that we would be able to see his Messiah when he came. That we today would be able to say, God has made it clear who this Jesus is. He is the Messiah and the Savior and the Lord and the King. I I can believe without giving up on rationality because it's, 
It's been told to me again and again and again in such miraculous accuracy through centuries before. This is compelling. This has legitimacy. I don't have to throw my brains out the door to have faith in God. God knew that you would have competing gods in your heart, that we would all have competing so-called saviors and Messiah. Whether it's idols of the Egyptians or the Babylonian gods, Baal or Shibboleth or whatever, or, or it's the modern gods of money, self-righteousness, of independence from any authority at all. He knew you'd have a lot of competing gods in your world, just like I do all the time. And so he wanted to make it really clear who God is and who the rightful king of our hearts is to be. And so he worked, if I could put it this way, he worked really hard for centuries so that when he finally sent the Messiah and when the Messiah said to the people, repent and believe, we wouldn't see him as just this fool, this lunatic. We would see that his life had such legitimacy. It did exactly what God said it would do. He became and fulfilled exactly what God said a Messiah would do and fulfill. I mean, so much is riding on our belief in, in a savior, whoever the savior might be for you, your money, your health, your children, your marriage, your good things, bad things. So much is riding on where you put your hope. God is trying to say, you need to put your hope in me. And so he worked hard that you would not be confused. You would not be deceived. He worked hard so that you would be able to say, now this is compelling. This is profound. This is miraculous. This Bible is, it's a miracle. He knows what he's doing. This world and history and it comes to pass just as he says. I need a God and this God has proved to me who he really is. So he's given you these miracles called perfect, prophetic, predictive prophecy that you would know who he is. And so when his son says, repent and believe the good news, you would be able to believe and repent. And what does it mean to repent? It means to agree with God instead of yourself. Metanoia, this Greek word, it, at its core, it means to change your mind. And not just simply intellectual, but from your heart to change your mind. It means to turn from loving and affirming and following with all your loyalty of heart, your own ways without God as your God, and instead say, oh God, you should be my God. It means to confess your waywardness and confess your selfishness, to agree that his holy law of love is good, and to agree that it is right to not reject your creator, but to honor him. That he deserves not your rebellion, but your honor and your faithfulness and your love and your friendship. It means to agree that we have failed him. And yes, even deserve his judgment. But Jesus did not just say repent. He said, believe the good news. If you're going to turn away from yourself, you've got to turn to something. And he's saying, that's the believe part. That's turning to him. Believe the truth 
of what God's Messiah has done for us. Believe on the authority of his word. That this son, Jesus, is indeed the Messiah, the son of the living God. That he is all that we could hope for in a God. For what more could you hope from a God that that, that he would love you so much that he would lay his life down for you? As I've said before, even if Christianity is a lie, it's the greatest lie that could ever be told. Because there's no God who could do more than this God. There's no love that could be greater than the love of this God. Who would at the very end not simply demand from you and judge you, but be judged for you. To believe the good news means to put your trust that his offering of himself for your sin, that when he says it's enough, you agree with him and say, okay, it's enough. You have paid for all of my sins, past, present, and future. I cannot make myself righteous enough and perfect enough, but you have made me right with you yourself. It means that we trust him to give us what we promised and we stop trying to earn it ourselves. But it also means that we seek to follow him by listen, by listen, listen, by trusting in his power, by trusting that he's going to do what he also promised, which is not just to die for our sins, but to give us when we ask him for it, his Holy Spirit, who alone changes our hearts and alone gives us the power to live for him that we don't have in ourselves. I have to keep repenting and believing many times throughout every day. I keep thinking that I've messed up too much. I keep thinking that I can do it on my own. I keep thinking that he's too sick of me to help me again. And to all of that, he says, repent and believe the good news. I keep thinking I can sneak by his ways and not get burned. And I keep thinking that he's going to turn the light off and shut the door and lock it so I can't come home when I've really blown it. And to all that, he just keeps saying, repent and believe the good news, Albert. Every day. So maybe you've known him for a long time. You've been walking with him for a long time. And today he's saying to you again, to your hopelessness, to your anger, to the sin that you just believe you can never be free from. He's saying to all that, repent, turn from that idea and believe the good news. I've come to give you power and to give you help. Turn from your bitterness. Turn from your hopelessness. Repent and believe again and then do it again after lunch. Or maybe it's the first time for you. Maybe I pray this is true. God's grace has said to you today through these words, there is something true and real and solid about this Messiah. The prophecies of the chosen one, they're not for movies. They're not for fantasy storybooks. They're in our DNA. We need them. And I need him. I need this Messiah. And if that's you, 
That's why he's here. That's why I'm saying these words. That's why he's asked me to say these words, I believe. And that's why Christmas is here. This world that is, has so much trouble with Christmas and religion and, you know, so much controversy. But still everywhere today, lights and trees and gifts and parties and fun. But don't miss this truth of it in it all. God is still echoing even through all this confusion. This is important. It is the most important thing there is. Maybe Christmas for you is full of pain and family no longer with you and hard relationships that are still hard and they're going to be hard tonight at the party and tomorrow at the party. Well, he's saying, I'm here for you. Will you come to me? I'm ready to receive you. Will you receive me? May God give us the grace to make Christmas about his Messiah, promised, prophesied, given over to death for our sins and risen to give us his life.